we can actually filter your reviews by your LinkedIn connections. Oh, so you cool. can actually see your first few connections. You can find peer entrepreneurs yeah. that are running the app. And obviously, if you see a great review from them, odds are you'll trust it because you know them. Mm. A little bit like on TripAdvisor, you can filter hotel reviews by your Facebook friends. Mm. And if someone you know stayed at the hotel, had a great experience, odds are you'll trust it. Same thing with LinkedIn, with SaaS apps. The trust is critical. Yeah. And, I think, and I think we are building a trusted brand of G, around G2 now where you know, people can trust it. I'm glad to hear you had a good experience. And yeah. frankly, we don't treat anyone differently whether they pay us or not. And I've always been that scrappy entrepreneur where you know, I really built it for you know, our brethren, yeah. people trying to build their own business. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, a show about those in the trenches actually doing the work. I'm Patrick Campbell. And I'm Neil Desai. And on today's show, how Godard Abel prioritized the power of people to spearhead multiple exits and lead a team steeped in loyalty and trust as the co-founder and CEO of G2. Anyone who tells you you're building a company, no matter what type of company it is, if they tell you that it's easy to do that, is a complete idiot. I'm just going to throw that out there. Are you going to write your biography now, Patrick? That's going to be it. It's going to be, don't be a complete idiot. The Patrick Campbell story. No, I, it's, but, but it is something important to like point out because I think that it's not even the difficulty of creating something from nothing or create or taking something that exists and, and pushing it further. It's, it's more about the loneliness, the dissonance, the difficulty making decisions and basically the the emotions that come with the ups and downs of building a business and ultimately the ups and downs of not having enough information to make decisions that are out there. I'm sure like you rely on a lot of support, right? Whether it's from your team or your- 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And I wasn't always really good at, at, at this in the beginning because as a first time founder, I didn't, you know, I didn't have that, not even, I, I probably had the support system, but I didn't actively use it or know that I should use it. But I think that today we're going to be talking to Goddard, um, who's the CEO and founder of G2 Crowd. And Goddard has a very, very storied career, multiple different exits. He's been extremely successful. But he's kind of this perfect crossover between someone who knows a lot about community and building a lot of community, but also someone who's really, really good at surrounding himself with the right people internally from a team and a people perspective, which is a common theme that we hear time and time again when we're talking to different entrepreneurs and founders about what makes a company successful, which ultimately is the people. Right. And sometimes some of the most important people are folks outside of the company, right? That can provide that support and encouragement throughout the ups and lows. Yeah, 100%. And we're going to get into what G2 Crowd is, which I think a lot of people already know, but really kind of the cold start problem that G2 Crowd faces, how they got a million different reviews um, at this particular point, which is a huge, huge win for any type of site that is review driven. Um, but we're going to start in a place that's actually low. We're going to go low, 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 and, and talk to Goddard a little bit about you know, some of the struggles that he has faced in his career being an extremely successful multi-exit CEO and founder and how he kind of coped with those with those downs and those lows in being a successful entrepreneur. What's one thing you overcame in your career and, and how did you overcome it? Yeah, and really it was, for me, probably the biggest thing comes to mind is anxiety. Mm. And Big Machines, my first journey wasn't up into the right. You know, I started the tailing.com era, but you know, in 2000, but by 2003, I was almost bankrupt. Ugh. I had burned through 20 million venture That's capital. It's a hard couple of years after 2000. Yeah. And I had to lay off. Frankly, my family didn't start so well. We scaled it to 60 people based on hype and .com first year. And then I had to do three big rounds of layoff. By 2003, we're down to 20 people. 
kind of going out of business. Mm. And uh, and forget I had a lot of anxiety. My father was my first investor, Ugh, and I just yeah. felt like, man, I'm gonna blow my dad's money and putting all my friends out of business. And yeah. it just it felt horrible. It felt like a heavy weight on my shoulders for a long time. Those are big. Big weights, right? Yeah, and as yeah. you know, it's a kind of the that's a challenge of entrepreneurship. Mm. It is very emotional, and obviously, when it's great, it's amazing, amazing highs. But it's somewhat of a bipolar experience, right? Yeah. Incredible lows. And now I've gotten very used to it, and now I realize I kind of love it. But when I was way down, it just it did feel horrible. Yeah. But I think you know, ultimately for me, it was just kind of grinding my way through it, and day by day, and especially when we're almost out of business. I luckily I met Matt Gorniak then. Frankly, he and I together figured out how do we sell this product. And we just kind of went one deal at a time. And and the other thing I've worked on more consciously the last few years is conscious leadership. So I actually hired a conscious leadership coach. Oh, cool. And then working more on taking care of myself physically, yeah. you know, presencing, meditation. I've learned how to deal with the anxiety mm-hmm. of entrepreneurship. Yeah. And, you know, kind of get the upside without, you know, as much of the downside. Yeah. It's kind of the highs, low, lows, high kind of yes. concept, which is cool. And even just realizing, even when I'm low and like the lowest moments are like, oh man, I'm coming back to San Francisco from Chicago. My flight gets, you know, yeah. delayed till 3 a.m. And you're like, why the hell am I doing this? Right. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. then you kind of remember, hey, there's a greater purpose in this. And, and, and I'm like, hey, part of what I signed up for is the lows, right? Not just the highs. Totally. Makes the highs worth it, right? Yes. Or like another low is like, you know, customer cancels on you. And as an entrepreneur, as you know, it feels like yeah. death. Yeah. And, and that's what makes it exciting, right? On the flip side, you win a new deal, win a big customer, yeah. and you feel so elated. Totally. And, uh, but I think that's that full life experience that entrepreneurship gives you. And I think just getting more conscious with that is, has been very helpful. Yeah, and I think the, the whole family, like you refer to it as your family, yes. you know, which I think is... You know, you don't hear that. I mean, you hear that sometimes, but like you don't hear it as, I feel as like deep of conviction that I hear it from you. Um, And I think that probably helps too, right? Because you have them around you, if you will. And Matt and I have worked together 15 years or my G2 Crowd co-founder, Tim and I, we've worked together for 19 years. Yeah. So in that sense, it pretty much is family, right? I've known Tim as long as I've known my wife. Oh, that's wild. That's (laughs) awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the other relationship, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, That's funny. That's how I refer our CPO and I, uh, we very similar like there's us and our significant others and that's that's kind of the, the relationship and sometimes i call yeah. matt corniak my work spouse yeah although yeah, he doesn't yeah. like that no <laughs> but he kind of is because i talked to him yeah the, yeah yeah and my wife stacy i've probably talked to matt as often you know yeah. i get as many phone calls from matt or maybe more than i do from stacy So I, I wonder how, how real is his anxiety, Patrick? Because Goddard seems like someone that's pretty level-headed and oh, has done this multiple times before. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I, I don't know if he fell apart the first company or not, but I, I think it's it's certainly something where he has a system and he's improved over time because I think a lot of this, it comes from from experience. I think I, I don't think that a lot of the things that you face as a founder and executive at a company, I, I don't think that those particular things are... Um, necessarily bad in and of themselves, right? A customer cancels, uh, you know, someone quits, uh, someone does something terrible. Like, like these things are obviously bad, but I don't think it's necessarily that which causes the frustration or the anxiety. It's the, oh, I haven't seen this before. I don't know how to act or react or respond to this particular situation, which then causes that anxiety to increase. So it's just the unknown. Yeah, it's a little bit of the unknown, but it's also hey, the stakes are high, right? So him talking about his father being one of his premier investors yep. in big layoffs, machines, yeah. layoffs, all of these different things that you know are, are maybe not exactly in his control, but ultimately are his responsibility. When you're facing those types of things, it can be a very, very lonely experience because people are looking at you to make these sure. decisions. And even if it's something that you don't care about, 
but you're still being looked at as, as the decision maker, all of a sudden that's like, well, I have to put myself through the mental paces of evaluating this particular situation, small, medium, or large, in order to make that decision. And I think that's where the anxiety comes from. Because even in positive situations, right? Like, hey, we're getting all these leads. What do we do? Right? Like right. that's that's a champion right. problem, but it can still cause anxiety because you're like, well, obviously maximizing that. I don't want to screw this yeah, up. Yeah, I want to yeah, maximize yeah. it. And I think that's that's where in, in Goddard kind of talking about keeping the highs low, the lows high of like making sure that you're at that particular pace. And there's a bunch of things that you can do, you know, meditation, all these other things. But I think that what helps more than those things, because I think that at least in my opinion, this might be controversial, that things like meditation, journaling, working out, eating right, all these different things absolutely help, but they more treat a lot of the symptoms than they do treat the actual root causes of these situations. And I think that what I mean by that is if something really, really bad happens, if you're in a really good place, you're going to make good decisions. And that assumes that maybe you meditate, you do all these different things that make you healthier, right? But the root cause is trying to make those bad things not happen, or at least loosen the load on you. And the way that you do that is with the team. Now, I don't know if I'm on board with the whole family concept. And we've talked about mm -hmm. this a lot internally because, you know, there's a whole Netflix model that's very, hey, it's, it's not a family. It's a high performance team, et cetera. Whereas Goddard, as we're going to find out, and he already alluded to, it's all about that family. You know, he's been with these people for, for 20 years. And I don't know, and, and unfortunately we didn't ask, but, you know, what if Matt wasn't pulling his weight and Goddard and him had a conversation? Is there a point they would break up or can Matt do no wrong? right? And Goddard can do no wrong. Like, what does that look like? It, it might be semantic. It might be something where, you know, the way Goddard looks at it, it's doesn't really matter. Like, yes, it's a family, it's a family, it's a family. And if you're you know, doing right within the family, it's great. If you're not doing right by the family, you get kicked out of the family. But the, the word family kind of throws me off a little bit just because it's one of those things where you're like, uh, I don't know, like you, you never get kicked out of a family, truly. Totally. I, I think the trade-offs are different, right? And I think, sure. I think there's more than one way to get to the promised land, but sure. this is a pretty stark contrast to what we typically find, I think, in the traditional SaaS tech world. But then again, I, I don't think it is, right? Because... You can't tell me, you know, we, we, you know, we're focused more on the high performance team. At least that's our semantic definition of this. But you've been here long enough that you know that that, that doesn't mean you're not a family. You're not creating, like, I don't have any other friends with the people here, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't have any, you know, I'm not close with any, I'm, I'm closer to Facundo almost than, than my significant other. Don't tell Jenny that. But, you know, it's one of those things where, like, that, that family is here. And I think it's one of those things that um, these aren't mutually exclusive. That's why I think it might be just a semantic aspect. But in order to learn a little bit more about like what Goddard means by the family, let's go a little bit deeper here because I think this is what helps him and G2 Crowd ultimately really win, which is having the right people around him so that when there's this dissonance or when there's this anxiety, he either is, can really easily deal with it with support or he doesn't have to deal with it at all because his other founders as well as um, the rest of his team can, can basically deal with it. Cool. Let's jump in. And, and speaking of like starting companies, so you've had you know, two, two really good exits, it sounds like. You know, this is one that's going really, really well as well. Like, how do you think about the pattern that you've, you've made? Because G2 Crowd's in a very different market. Like, maybe not very different, but it's different product, right? Like, definitely a very different product. Like, if you were going to start a company today or you were going to go into a new market, like, what are those fundamentals that you think have made you, you know, pretty successful so far? And I do think the number one thing is our entrepreneurial family. 
Sure. And happens, you know, Matt Korniak? Yeah. Who lives in Brookfield, Wisconsin? Yeah, yeah, Go Bradley, and go Braves. Yeah, yes. yeah. And a Bradley alum? Yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously, a great Midwestern guy. And we have built a lot of our companies in Chicago. So we, we do love Midwestern tech. But I think that the common thing across all our companies, now we're building a fourth company. We just announced 3Kit. Okay. But it's our oh, entrepreneurial family. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. What's and, that company? And that's a 3D visualization, AR-based selling company. Mm -hmm. And you can do amazing 3D visualizations. Helps companies like Herman Miller, Steelcase, Cell Furniture. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because rather than just having a static catalog image, you now have a shiny 3D model. And with AR, you can actually see what that couch looks like in your living room cool. before you buy it. So it helps retailers increase conversion as well as reduce returns mm. with really cool immersive commerce. And really all we're doing there, and obviously G2 Crowd, that's my job. But some of my entrepreneurial family friends who were still at Salesforce with Steelbrick and obviously great company, but some of them just got the entrepreneurial itch again. They said, hey, let's go build another one. Yeah. And we met this entrepreneur, Ben Houston, actually out of Ottawa, Canada. And he wanted our help to scale his business. He needed capital and he needed to go to market team. He had great technology, great product, but didn't have the resources to scale it. And so we partnered with him. Now we've dropped in 20 members of our entrepreneurial family, yeah. Salesforce, Steelbrick alumni. And in one quarter, we've been able to grow it from just about zero to a million ARR. That's wild. And, uh, but it's that proven team. Yeah. And it's, it's not small. It's not like you and a partner. Like you just mentioned 20 people you dropped in. And yes. I know there's... I mean, there's a number of founders at, at G2 Crowd. It's not like two or three of you guys. Right, five of us together, Yeah, all so, from big machines. So what what keeps that together, right? You know, because you're all, you know, there's all ego because you're all leaders. I mean, you've killed that hopefully after working mm -hmm. together so long, but it still flares up, I'm sure. Like, mm -hmm. how do you maintain the relationships with people who are good, consistently good, and you're all working consistently together. Right. And I think we recognize we're good at different things. And Matt Gorniak's been my partner now in every business since Big Machines. And perfect example, right? He's amazing at revenue and selling, and you know him, right? Just yeah. tremendous personality, tremendous energy. I'm probably a little bit more analytical. Mm -hmm. I went to MIT, I'm more of an engineer, yeah. a little bit more thoughtful than Matt. So we kind of have different skills, different styles that are very complimentary. Mm -hmm. And certainly the same thing, our five co-founders, Mark, best designer I'd ever met. So he's our chief design officer. Mike Wheeler was the best young software engineer we had in our team. So he's a CTO. And Tim Handorf, he was our product leader and really the best overall manager I ever met. Mm. So now he's our president running the operations at G2. So everyone has their strength. Yeah. And it's very complimentary. And that's one thing after working together many years, you know each other professionally, yeah. you know what you're good at. And I think everyone realizes, but we all feel like we're the best at what we do. And then together we can do magical things. Yeah. And I think there's just an element of trust that, hey, you know, we push each other really hard. But at the same time, we're family, so we take care of each other. And I think that allows people to be in their zone of genius sure. and really grow. And I think that's what people crave. And that's why I think we all keep coming back and that's building cool. another one. And do you, do you do anything specifically? I mean, you've known these folks for a long time. Like, is there anything you do to cultivate like, that wider network? Like, maybe not just the five, but then like, the, the network where you can drop you know, 20 you know, Steelbrick Salesforce folks into this new company? Like, what do you do to keep that going? Right. And then, frankly, Steelbreak, it was more dramatic. We brought well over 100 from Oracle Big Machines into Steelbreak. Same to me. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but we do cultivate it. I mean, certainly, you know, we do all the, the things like having holiday parties. And, sure. and what we do every time we do launch a company now, we launch 3Kit in Chicago, but we invite into a whole entrepreneurial family. Yeah. So we invite everyone who's, you know, still at Salesforce, people at Oracle. So basically anyone, like, hey, we're we, doing this, you yes. know, come hang out. So yeah. we do social get-togethers and, you know, and then people, frankly, have just become friends. Yeah. And, uh, and that just kind of keeps rolling. I think I better understand the family element now. I feel like we're, 
we're talking down here, or we were talking down here before, and I think Goddard's talking up here. Because if you, if you really think about it, it's kind of like the pro sports team. Like, it's almost everything comes around. Yeah. Right? You know, I can't imagine, you know, the dream team, you know, the famous, you know, basketball team is successful unless there's a little bit of cohesion, if not a lot of cohesion. And what we're, we're we were kind of talking about, you know, at kind of the outset, you're a 10 person team, you've never worked together, you should be a pro sports team versus family. I think where Goddard is, is very much, hey, we've been very successful. We've been very successful. We hang out. And that's where we become the family because we support each other. We help each other, but we're all kind of in this mission together. It's almost like he's reached the top of some Maslow's hierarchy <laughs> of needs. I don't know what the label would be on this, this particular pyramid, but that's what makes it. So he's like, oh, you need help? Here's 20 people. Right. Oh, I'm starting this new thing. 40 people are coming. <laughs> Great. I think and that I, empathy, that's crazy. Yeah. That, just the camaraderie that creates within the team, I think, with, with caring for one another after you've had that performance is is different than I think what yeah. we were referring to before. Well, and this gets into all the the different, you know, kind of and this this goes back to and I say this often on the podcast, like, you know, wisdom has to be learned, it can't be taught. And I think one of the ultimate wisdom pieces or missives that that really comes out of being a successful executive or an entrepreneur is you have to deeply care. Like you can make a lot of money and not care about anyone and just kind of burn through things. And there's plenty of examples of that existing. But to be someone who can have, you know, bad things happen. And that assumes bad things don't happen. If something bad happens in one of those organizations, people cut and run and they're out of there, right? If something bad happens with G2 Crowd, God forbid, he's got a team that's going to, you know, basically push things forward. He's got that core team that's more than just him and his co-founders. That's dozens and dozens of people around him. And then, of course, there's all of the new members of the family that are kind of coming in. And so I think it's, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, the conversation we were having before was a little bit too low level. We're talking about a higher level of abstraction here when it comes to the, the Goddard family, let's say, or the et al. family. There. I think what's interesting is reconciling. You have to simultaneously care a lot about everything, but also not care or... or also have your emotions in check so that when, when it gets too high or get too low, you can sort of maintain that balance. Well, it's like, it's straddling that precipice, yeah. right? So you, I, I'm assuming Goddard has kicked people out of the family. I don't know who he's kicked out of the family. I don't know why and what circumstances, but I, I find it hard to believe you, you can't have been this successful with multiple different companies with multi hundred million dollar and, and going up, you know, valuations for all three companies that he's, he's helmed, you know, in recent years, you can't be successful without, probably making a mistake in hiring and cutting some of the fat, cutting someone out of the family, if you will. It's more of where the emphasis is. And at different stages in an organization, I think for us, the reason we emphasize the high performance team so much is because, frankly, like we were bad at hiring. I think we've gotten so much better at hiring, but we're, we don't know how bad we are until we kind of keep things going. We don't know how much we've improved. And I think in this particular case, they've, they've gotten so much better that they have to be good at this and they already have that, that core family around him. No, I think, I think that makes a ton of sense. It goes to show like how different things are at different stages of the company. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, especially now that you know G two Crowd, they're they're a big dog. I yeah, think their well, latest valuation was like half a billion. They're not quite a unicorn, but I'm sure it's coming pretty soon, which is always good. But I think that one theory I have here, and this is what I'm excited about. The next thing, kind of getting into Goddard, is that I I think location has a little bit to do with this. And yeah, they're from Chicago, right? Well, it's a they're a global company at this point. They have offices, you know, all over the world. They've 
Um, I think we're about to find out they acquired a company in India, uh, Goddard's from Germany, Mm -hmm. Um, as we've already alluded to, and we shouldn't allude to it anymore. Matt, um, you know, one of his co-founders is from, you know, Wisconsin and went to the same alma mater I did. We're the only two people in tech from Bradley University. But what's kind of fascinating is, is I think that the location has an aspect to this because building a community and, and is extremely difficult. And I think what's kind of fascinating about Goddard is like, there's a really large crew that's from Chicago. And a lot of people, you know, they kind of put their nose up at the flyover states, if you will. And obviously San Francisco is, is the mecca of the world of tech. But there's a really fascinating kind of theory that I have around kind of Goddard's success and some other companies' success um, where they have a very community-oriented, you know, team because it's a community-oriented product. And they were able to track those types of people based on not being in the coasts. Interesting. And so I'd love to, and I know the people on the East and West Coast listening to this are all like, no, no, we're the best, we're the best. Which, yeah, it's in some way, if, you, if you're adding up the ones and zeros, yeah, you are. But that doesn't mean that you can't have success in other places. But enough of my rambling and your rambling. Let's jump in and hear Goddard tell us a little bit about building a company that has a hardcore Midwestern presence. Talk to me a little bit about like building a company in Chicago. Like I know you guys have offices out here and you're based out here, correct? I and I was in Chicago kind of for back. 10 years. Yeah, and yeah. I had to go back and forth. But for Steelbrick, the founder of that actually built the product. Max Rudman was in Palo Alto, so I came back yeah. out. Okay, um, cool. but, uh, but most of our team is in Chicago. Yeah. And what we love, I mean, frankly, it's easy to be more differentiated because we are, and I don't think we just believe this, we're you know, one of the five coolest tech companies in Chicago. Yeah. You know, whereas if I'm honest, in San Francisco, we're probably one of the coolest 500. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's just so many amazing high-growth tech companies. In Chicago, as you know, it's a huge economy, 7 million people, many Bradley grads, yeah, yeah, yeah. University of Illinois, Northwestern, yeah. University of Chicago. Yeah. And as you know, many Midwesterners want to come to Chicago. They want to build their career there. And, and so the talent pool, I think, is huge. And there aren't that many cool kind of natively built. A lot of companies have second offices there. Obviously, sure. Oracle, Salesforce, Google. But if you actually want to be at the entrepreneurial center, building a global scale company from Chicago, there's only a handful of opportunities. So we find we can really get the best of the best mm. in Chicago. That's cool. And is there something? I know we talked a little bit before filming about you know some of the differences between Midwesterners and you know kind of other folks. Right. Like, is there something like you've noticed a little bit different, like with the talent there, like in particular in reference to you know East Coast, West Coast? I mean, I would say people are stickier. You know, which I think is a good thing, certainly. Because I think in Chicago, still, like, you know, if you change jobs every three years, that's okay. I think in San Francisco, the mindset's a little bit more, hey, one year here, one year there, I'll best a little bit. You kind of keep moving. Mm-hmm. And so certainly I think we're trying to build a company for the long term. And like I said, many of our team members have been with us now 15, almost 20 years. I think that's easier to do in Chicago, you know, because there's kind of, hey, there's fewer other shiny objects. And it's just a little bit more the mindset of people that, you know, they're, they're just a little bit more patient building things for the longer term. Yeah. I think it's also cool because you mentioned kind of the trust, like Midwesterners were a little, and I'm from Wisconsin, um, mm, like, yeah. you know, we're a little bit, um, almost too trusting sometimes, mm. <laughs> but we also, you know, trust is like an important thing, you know, loyalty is an important thing. And, you know, when someone does right by you, you're willing to, you know, jump back into the fray because I'm sure you've had, you know, more entry level or, you know, mid-level people who, when you started the next thing, they're like, yeah, I'll go work there. You know, I'll go work for that team again and hang out, even though they're not, you know, the founding team, if you will. And frankly, it's not just our, our team, but it's also frankly, like I've worked with the same attorney 
John Gavin at Cooley for 20 years across all my companies. That's yeah, we work with the same realtor, Max Trapovsky, across all our companies. Yeah. And so I think once we find people who like each other, we are very loyal. Mm. And it does make it much faster and easier. Because yeah, you don't have to think about, oh, should I talk to three realtors, interview them? No, like, I'm just going to call Max. He's going to take care of me. So that allows you, I think, to go a lot faster, ultimately. When you, know, you have your trusted partners, your trusted team, then once you see an opportunity, and as you know, in tech, they move fast but then you can bring a lot of resources to bear very quickly that have just the right skills in just the right combination. Yeah. And I do think that gives us an unfair advantage. You have context of building companies out here in the West Coast, you have context in Chicago. Is there something that you feel like Chicago is missing or like holding back Chicago? Well, I think the Bay Area has is more ambition. Yeah. You know, and frankly, you know, we had two pretty good exits at 400 million, but like in the Bay Area, oh, that's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and so insane, this but, time, yeah. yeah, this time, you know, obviously, and I, I do want to, ring the bell, take a company public. I've yeah. achieved that. I would say the level of ambition is higher here and the level of capital you can raise. Sure. So I think you know to do something really big, really fast is probably easier here. It's also easier to blow it up here. Sure, sure, right? sure. But I do think the, the ambition and the capital are, you know, that's what's unique about the Bay Area and the Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like the, that's why it's hard to compare anything to Silicon Valley, just because you know, it's like the Mecca and, you know, yeah. everything's kind of unique. It's like comparing stuff to Apple, you know, right. you know, Apple got a lot of things right, you know, which, which works out. Which and I do cool. think as an entrepreneur, ultimately you have to be global. And I sure. kind of think of it in Chicago, you take the best of Chicago. In the Bay Area, you take the best of the Bay Area. And we're actually about to launch in London. And I'm originally from Germany, yeah. you know, but I think, and actually I saw it's the first company I worked for, McKinsey Consulting mm-hmm. Firm, but they did a really good job of, it was kind of an American company, yeah. but in every country they adapted and made it local. The culture, so yeah, that in, you know, in England, you can show up as a, as a UK company. Yeah. You know, in the Silicon Valley, you're a valley company. In Chicago, we're a Midwestern company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and uh, yeah. so I think adapting to local culture, I think, is important. Yeah. And it makes it more fun. Totally. And you bought you bought a company in Bangalore, right, recently? Uh, yes, Shiftery. Yeah. Although the founders had moved over to San Francisco. Oh, but cool. most of the team is in Bangalore. But oh, a great cool. group of engineers, product people led by Vamshi and I, they're the two co-founders. Yeah. And it's one of the things we've learned is we make them part of the entrepreneurial family. Yeah. And they attach their entrepreneurial dreams to ours. That's awesome. And I think we're off to a great start with them. So that's that's really interesting, right? The the trade-off between loyalty and ambition there he mentioned. Yeah, yeah. He didn't really characterize it exactly like that, but I, I see what you're getting at. So I think that Midwest, there's there's a weird trust factor, loyalty factor. Uh, there's you know, growing up in small town Wisconsin, it was very, you know, you, you, you kind of just inherently trust everyone, which is terrible. Um, but it's because, you know, you're, you, you go, well, I wouldn't do something bad to this person. So why should they do something bad to me? Like, it's a very interesting, interesting model. But when it comes to a company, I think that that loyalty and that attrition, you know, that he was mentioning, um, where the average, you know, tenure, it's like totally, you know, normal to stay at a job three to four years, whereas in Silicon Valley, and I'd argue even Boston, you know, you have, uh, you know, maybe a year in a lot of places. My question for you, since you're the young one here and I'm like somehow the old one, is let's say we want to keep you at Profwell for 10 years. Totally. Right? Or longer, forever. Do you think that the company is failing the person and that's what's causing them to leave? Or do you think the person, you know, is just flaky and, and is just going to leave a company no matter, no matter what they give them? I think more often than not, it's the company. Interesting. Yeah. 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 I mean, Why? if you like, if you if you ask a handful, at least for me, I think uh, I'm looking for an opportunity to to grow my career and learn. And it, it's it's if I can continue getting that somewhere, then I have no reason to leave, right? 
uh, most of the folks that I talk to have changed jobs or, you know, are on the market are unhappy on one axis, right? Might be comp, might be opportunities, might be management, whatever, whatever the case may be. But I think the company has the most control over all. So wait a second. So are you saying that basically people in Chicago, just there's better companies in Chicago? Uh, that's I don't know essentially what you're alluding to. It There's is what I'm alluding to. Yeah. In Silicon I mean, it may be a function of the density, right? So it, I, it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing. Like, I think you may have to just be more cutthroat in Silicon Valley, given the market. But I think the companies in Chicago can afford some of these, uh, I don't know if it's benefits or perks or whatever, sure. that in turn lead to higher retention from an employee mm. standpoint, right? I think there's, yeah, I think there's a, I think it's kind of an unfair trade-off. Like I set you up to be a little unfair there because I think that- But you think it's, a, you think it's on the employee? Well, no, I think, I, I think there's, the, I think it's a lot more complicated yeah. is, is what I really want to <laughs> say. I, I think that, but I do think there's a flakiness to my generation, your mm-hmm. generation. I think there's, there's a flakiness. Interesting. Well, because if you, if you look at it, it's like, you're saying it's on the company. Well, we've hired some of these people yeah. where it's like, no matter what the company does, like it's unfair. Yeah. Right. Like, oh, it's unfair. I didn't get the opportunity. Yeah. I didn't get the training. I didn't get this. And we're like, well, yeah. you got a lot of this and then you never said anything. Mm-hmm. And yeah, maybe we could have gone out of our way, but you're like sure. an adult. We treat you like an adult. And I think that they're, they're you know, and adults are not, you know, it's, it's ageless. You can have a 40-year-old who's not an adult and a 20-year-old who is an adult, right? But I think I, I think there is a flakiness. I also wonder if it, it changes if you segment it across startups versus larger companies, right? Uh, early stage folks are financially incented to, to stay for three, four years, right? Rather than Maybe. if you're on the corporate track. But you don't uh, see that. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. You don't see that in Silicon Valley. You do see that in like Chicago, Utah, a little bit in Boston. Like I think that there's, and, and that's where it's kind of fascinating. And I would argue that that's what makes Goddard so unique is that his company, and, and it's not just him, it's his co-founders and the rest of the crew have, have created such a, have engendered such loyalty. And it probably comes from, you know, that, that f- balance of being that familial company while also being, um, you know, high performance oriented and, and wanting to win. And I think that's, that's what's interesting. I think there's lessons we can take there, right? I mean, ultimately, like, uh, I, on average, I would say as an employee, like, I, if you can I hate when you call yourself an employee, <laughs> I hate that word. You tweeted that the other day. Yeah, right? I you don't like employees. Word. No, no, because it's it's not. It's just this like master slave arrangement. That's but what that's, it kind of. That's what you me. call them. No, I know, like, but, but you're a team member. You're a partner on the team. Like it, again, it, it's semantic, and it might go to this family uh, aspect. But it's like you're, sure. you're like you're an employee. You're one of my employees. Like how terrible I, is it to say that? Right, but Te- technically, if no, I'm no, not no, implying, no. technically, no, no, no. technically, you're you're an employee of the company. Of the company, I'm an employee as well. So that's like when you say the word employee, it's just like I get I get I get what you're saying, but um, I think there's lessons we can take there from uh, ultimately from the company's perspective, right? Sure. Anything we can do to improve employee retention is is amazing. Even from team selfish, <laughs> even from a selfish standpoint, I want more of my team members to stick around longer because it improves morale, it helps the company move sure. forward, etc. So. Um, I think there's lessons we can take there, and and I and I and I hope uh, I don't know about the West Coast, but uh, I hope we can imbue some of that on the East Coast when there comes to um, you know making sure that employees are <laughs> team members are getting value from, yeah. from their company. I think there's I think there's something bigger here. I, I don't I don't think you can say it's the company because I don't think you could say it's necessarily the team member either because. It, if that were the case, then attrition rates would be would wouldn't be as different between Chicago, Salt Lake City, and San Francisco. That's why we put that office in Utah was because going looking at like Silicon Valley, yeah, the costs were high, but also the attrition was crazy. Like loyalty didn't exist. 
And it, it's probably a bit of both. There's probably some transient nature to young team members. And then there's also, you know, too much of a crushing mentality with some of the companies there. And that's the price and the trade-off that they're willing to make. Whereas you have other, you know, companies in Silicon Valley, I'm sure, that have crazy high, you know, loyalty, like, numbers, um, you know, with people being there for a very, very long time. Like, even Google, like, Google up until the last couple of years, I mean, even then, the attrition rates aren't, as, aren't bad. Um, there's, there's, there's heavy loyalty there for people staying. Hey, do you think we should talk about G2 Crowd? No, I don't think we should talk about G2 Crowd at all. <laughs> we are a customer. This is more interesting. No, I'm just kidding. No, yeah, we are a customer. I actually like G2 Crowd a lot. I think it's... It's one of those things where there's a lot of different review sites and we're going to get into what G2 Crowd actually is. I just realized we haven't even really set that up for Goddard here, but it's always better to hear it straight from the source. So let's go through what is G2 Crowd, what was kind of the, the impetus for it, and then we're going to get into some really, really practical knowledge on building community and ultimately kind of like seeding a marketplace and getting over that cold start problem. So let's kick it over to Goddard. You've founded, you know, a couple of companies at this point. Why? Why was this like the next idea? Like particularly because you were doing, you know, CPQ steel brick in the past. Like, why was this the the future that you were going after? Yeah, and I've always been an enterprise software entrepreneur like yourself. Yeah. And my first company, Big Machines, it was CPQ configure price quote software. Eventually had success, and it was bought by Oracle. Mm. Then we built another company, Steel Brick. Yeah. which became Salesforce CPQ. Yeah. So I think some blogger recently called me the godfather of CPQ. Which is like, there's very few of us who are big fans of the world of CPQ. Yes. So there it's you go. It's a bit obscure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't make me famous walking down the street. Hey, be the king of you know, even a small niche. I yeah. like it, yeah. But what that did inspire me, my experience of big machines, one of my frustrations as an entrepreneur was it's hard to get validation, hard to get the world to know about my products. And the, one of the moats was Gartner and the Magic Quadrant. And I remember big machines, it took us nine years just to get one of their reports. Jeez. And, uh, and then even when it took us, I think, 12 years to become the leader yeah. in CPQ. You probably and, had to pay them a little bit in yes. some fashion. And yeah. I think even that's okay. But the main frustration as an innovative entrepreneur is the speed. Yeah. You know, because for nine years, I didn't even exist in the market, mm. at least according to that report. That's and the incredible. other thing I love as an entrepreneur, I love talking to customers. Frankly, I didn't like talking to analysts, but I love talking to my customers, and I would learn from my customers. And that was basically the idea for G2 was, hey, instead of having this magic quadrant, that's updated every two years, very kind of slow lagging report. Let's have real time customer voice. That's cool. And we started in 2012, obviously by then we're all using Amazon. We all use reviews as consumers to buy almost anything. Mm. And we just thought it was missing for our industry. And Mark Benioff had a similar vision with the App Exchange, yeah. but obviously that was only for Salesforce platform products. And frankly, the reviews there tended to be all five star. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of authentic feedback. And so we set out G2 to really be an authentic customer voice platform. Mm. And if you're an entrepreneur, we also designed it. You never have to talk to us. You never have yeah. to pay us. It's freemium. And as soon as you have 10 reviews, you're on our grid, which That's is our cool. quadrant. You're in our ratings. And buyers start discovering you. I mentioned 3 billion, million buyers a month now. And they will start to find your product. And if you have great customer reviews, great customer testimonials, they'll start to engage with you. Sure. And so it really makes an entrepreneur's life much easier. Just yeah. build a great SaaS app, listen to G2 Crowd, get your customers to speak for you, and you'll start getting more validation, getting more business, yeah. just by amplifying your customer's voice. Do you look at reviews? I look at reviews. You know what's kind of funny? I, I don't know if I seek reviews out... But I do, hmm, it's so, it's a, such an interesting question because it, it is a little bit of like a chicken or the egg <laughs> in the sense that I normally, there's so much stuff that like for Netflix, for instance, I don't look at any reviews for Netflix, anything. 
I just wait for someone to tell me. Sure. Like, hey, I watched this thing. You should watch it. And and I think it's just because there's so many things that I can use, you know, Netflix or, or watch on Netflix. And when it comes to a piece of software, I do think I look at reviews more because what ends up happening is I'll be like, oh, we're having this tr- problem of some sort. And then people will suggest some things. And then it kind of goes into the calculus where I'll look at like G2 Crowd um, and some of the other reviews. I always look at reviews when it's on the website. When they put it really? on their website, I always look at the reviews for some reason. I'm always more cynical in those cases. And I don't know why. Well, cause like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm talking more when they like show all of them, not just like a random testimony. Oh, oh, oh gotcha. But when they're like, hey, we have this many five-star reviews or whatever it is. Yeah, but it's one of those things where like I'll always look in that particular case. So I guess I, the short answer is yes, I look at reviews. I, I, I think it's more of, and, and this is exactly how... I think G2 Crowd has been successful. Like I'll search for a company. It'll show up in the Google search. I click it. That's when I look at it. Or someone tells me, hey, you should use this product or these are the two products you can use. And then I go do more research and it always pops up in the research. And I think what's interesting is because now there's a, there's a culture of giving reviews and reading reviews, sites like G2 Crowd are useful because they can summarize a lot of these findings, right? For like consumer products, I like always read the wire cutter article on if I should buy that uh, gadget or whatever. The wire cutter, right? I literally just scroll <laughs> wire cutter. Yeah. Like, what do I need to buy? It's cool. Like, I don't yeah. even, I yeah, don't yeah, even yeah. really like seek stuff out anymore. It's just, let me go to wire cutter and see what I need for it's my house. It's a lot house. of fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I do think reviews can be gamed, right? I think that reviews, we had that situation two years ago now where we had like some fake review stuff going on and one of our competitors tweeted about it and it became this, whole like, <laughs> this whole thing of not the most charitable interpretation um, by them at least. And so we were the ones to go and figure out what was going on for our whole category. So there were bad reviews in all of our competitors and ours and, and we ended up fixing it. But it was one of those things that I think that what's cool about G2 Crowd and, and Goddard kind of went into this is you have the ability to kind of like often you have the ability to, you know, see the trusted folks um, who have kind of filled things out. And then there's an aggregation there. So you can kind of see like, oh, that one looks a little bit too happy. That one looks good. That one looks authentic. Because even though they all might be authentic, you, you know, you, what you need to hear is going to be different versus what, you know, I need to hear, for instance. No, I think that makes sense. You see this a lot with like Amazon fraud, review fraud and, and whatnot, right? And, and tools that help correct that. I think with enterprise software, especially like you're making a big decision, right? You're, you're spending a lot of money and, and, and it's an, it, you want to do your homework. Yeah. But I think what's fascinating about reviews in particular is that for one, for G2 Crowd, they have a cold start problem, Right. Where it's, it's, if, if we were going to start G2 Crowd tomorrow, well, G2 Crowd has become more powerful because of the network effect of having over a million reviews. Yep. We would have zero reviews, right? So that's an interesting problem that we can learn from. And also, I think we already kind of alluded to it, which is the trust factor, right? Because if we don't trust any reviews, then all of these reviews are useless. And if we trust some reviews, then presumably you trust all reviews. And so that trust factor in building that community is so important. And I think that what's interesting, and, and, and it might feel a little bit like a stretch, but I think a lot of the loyalty aspects and a lot of the things that Goddard has thought about in building a company or just kind of developed into has also helped them in building this community that is trusted by so many different people. Because interestingly enough, and I don't, I don't know why this is, and I also don't know like I'm not just saying this because Goddard's a guest on the show. We're more than happy to have his competitor CEOs on the show as well. For some reason, I trust G2 crowd reviews over Capterra's and some of the others that are out there. 
I don't know if I, I maybe just because I was involved with G two Crowd earlier than I was with Captera. Have you given more G two Crowd reviews than Captera? I probably have given more G two Crowd reviews that as well. May play some. So they've sucked that, me right? into the community, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. And I have no re I have no reason not to trust Captera's reviews. I have absolutely no reason. It's just one of those things where I find myself going to G two Crowd more. And that's why I became a customer as well because we got sucked into the community, right? So it's kind of it's, it's an interesting thing this whole trust factor because the trust probably isn't built necessarily perfectly on the actual authenticity of the reviews. Oh, no, not at all. It's yeah. built by just trusting the community that's been built, right? And I think there's social proof of having brands that you love also use G2 Crowd, yeah, so right? Yeah, HubSpot. Exactly. The bigger brands, they use like all of them. <laughs> sure. But there's, I just see G2 Crowd more. I see the brand more. And, and therefore, they're at all, I trust they're at the brand all the events crushing it. Yeah, right? I see them all yeah. the time. Interesting. Well, let's get let's get back into that and have Goddard actually teach us before, besides us just rambling here about reviews and all that kind of fun stuff because we have the expert here. So let's kick it back to Goddard. Probably don't have this problem as much anymore, but maybe a little bit where, you know, oh, why, why do I need a list on G2 Crowd, right? How am I going to, why should I go to G2 Crowd to make my search, right? Um, and you guys rank really well for, you know, SEO with a lot of your rankings. So what was kind of the thought process around, like, growth just in general, like just from getting off the ground. Yeah. And the challenge in building a review platform marketplace, it's a cold start problem. Yeah. You know, Yelp's founders actually blogged about it, but like when Yelp went to Istanbul first, it's actually really hard, right? Because any community site, just like we started actually in CRM software. Mm -hmm. And the reason we started there, as I mentioned, we built our first two companies in Salesforce ecosystem. So we knew a lot of people and we had this idea, let's get B2B reviews. So we just put up a booth at Dreamforce and we're handing out $5 Starbucks cards oh, to cool. our friends at Dreamforce saying, hey, can you write a review of Salesforce or one of the other apps in the ecosystem? And so we kind of went category by category to get to a critical mass of reviews. But then what started to happen, once we had hundreds of CRM reviews, all of a sudden we rank on Google. And all of a sudden all the CRM buyers are starting to look at G2 reviews. And then we can go to all the CRM vendors. And actually there isn't just Salesforce. It's amazing about software is actually over 250 different CRM apps, yeah. different regions, different verticals, and all waiting to be discovered. Mm -hmm. And then usually once you go to entrepreneurs, they're like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Once I get 10 reviews, I'm on your grid. I can be there alongside Salesforce. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so it's just really quick and easy to get in the game. And then we get that flywheel. And we've gone category by category. Now we have 1,500 categories. And you know, we started CRM and marketing apps. SaaS apps were very strong there. Now newer categories for us are we're getting the IT products. Yeah. So we launched at AWS reInvent, actually with AWS last November in Las Vegas. That was exciting. That's cool. That's and uh, yeah, and AWS drove over three thousand reviews. They were also raising money for Girls Who Code. Yeah. So they donated ten dollars to Girls Who Code for every review their customers wrote. That's so cool. And uh, and so now we're getting really going in IT and security. And so we kind of just go category by category till we cover the whole world of technology. Yeah. Oh, it's kind of wild, like. Because you have the cold start problem, you also have like a trust problem potentially, correct? Because, you know, we still trust Amazon reviews, but we kind of read them a little bit more like diligently, like on certain products because we're like, oh, like, you know, some people can game reviews and like things like that. Like, how do you think about, you know, that problem in particular when it comes to, you know, especially new categories, right? Like, it's another problem where I know we're in a very niche category um, where basically it's a, you know, it's a subcategory under BI, under subscription, subscription analytics, right? There's only like three or four of us in the market, okay. right? But we have a category for you on G2? We, we have a category, yeah. Nice. Um, and so it's Which one of those Which is amazing, things, right? Because Gardner doesn't have a category for you yet. Totally. But now we have subscription analytics. Yeah, yeah. And, and we, we, I know you can fit in a couple, we fit in another one. But 
how do you how do you kind of you know balance that trust? Because there's trust on like are these reviews good? Um, then there's trust on like well like there's just not enough here, so maybe this isn't a good market. Like how do you think about that trust factor? Because you know it's kind of like the Eric Schmidt Google problem, right? You're like you're one step away from them going to you know Gartner, you know who has kind of come to you guys now in terms of like changing some of the things they've done. Right, and you're right. People have to trust the reviews on G2. And one thing we did differently from Yelp from the beginning is you have to authenticate with your LinkedIn profile. Yeah. And certainly in our industry here, SaaS, software, IT, everyone's on LinkedIn. Mm. And so, A, we know it's a real person. We know who you are in your professional context. We know you run a startup. You're in computer software. And so based on that, A, we can validate to make sure they're real people. We do also have a research team that validates every review. So we ask users to also upload screenshots. Yeah. And obviously our whole community now, 3 million people coming a month, they can also report abuse if they suspect it. Yeah. So we do have a research team that, that will follow up. But we do find by associating with a LinkedIn profile, sure. with a real person. And now and LinkedIn is also a partner and investor in G2. But so one of the things we can do now, we can actually filter your reviews by your LinkedIn connections. Oh, so you cool. can actually see your first few connections. You can find peer entrepreneurs yeah. that are running the app. And obviously, if you see a great review from them, odds are you'll trust it because you know them. Mm. A little bit like on TripAdvisor, you can filter hotel reviews by your oh. Facebook friends. Mm. And if someone you know stayed at the hotel, had a great experience, odds are you'll trust it. Same thing with LinkedIn with SaaS apps. Yeah. One of your first degree connections you know and trust loves the app, odds are you'll trust them. And frankly, if you're not sure yet, you can reach out to them. Yeah. Changing the same way recruiting has changed with LinkedIn. Mm. Everyone used to ask people for three references. Sure. I think we may still do that. But really, I go to LinkedIn and I find a mutual connection. And I do a blind reference check. Yeah. And G2 enables the same thing for technology. Oh, that's cool. Because you can see, oh, you used this. Was that legit? That kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. And your research team's really good. We had some, like, issues where, like, there was a review. And we're like, this doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. We had some, and they did a, like, review, like, really quickly, which was kind of cool. Even And we felt, this was before, you know, we were a customer. But we felt mm-hmm. we were like, oh, wow, like, this little category out of, you know, we're not the CRM or the customer success category. We felt like it was, it was you know, very diligent, which is right. cool. But the trust is critical. Yeah. And, I think, and I think we are building that trusted brand of G, around G2 now where you know, people can trust it. I'm glad to hear you had a good experience. And yeah. frankly, we don't treat anyone differently whether they pay us or not. And I've always been that scrappy entrepreneur where, you know, I really yeah. built it for you know, our brethren, yeah. people trying to build their own business. Goddard and G2 Crowd have done something, and we alluded to this already before, but they've done something that I think is extremely hard with not only like B2B products or consumerized B2B products, which is kind of what G2 Crowd is on, on some level, but also just companies in general. And that's somehow bake trust into the experience. I have no reason to trust G2 Crowd inherently. Yeah. I have no reason to trust the reviews that they've created. But somehow through repetition, SEO, interactions with you know their their folks at events and things like that, somehow I trust them over over other aspects. And I think that that's a lesson that most folks can take, no matter if they're a marketplace or have partially a marketplace within their product uh, or not, which is that repetition on some level brings that trust and brings that loyalty, which is something obviously that we've seen not only in how Goddard builds companies, but also in terms of the actual physical G2 crowd product. I think I think that's a really good point because I am so cynical these days of so much that goes on around the SaaS and, and, and subscription world. 
everything from Twitter to social proof to uh, what companies are blogging about, right? I'm a, maybe it's just me, but I, I tend to be very cynical about these things. And like you, I, I do trust G2 Crowd and have used it to make buying decisions before. So um, There's a weird humanity element here. Like, I, I think that going back to what I said about Netflix, like, it's, it's not that I don't trust their algorithm anymore. It's just, it's just ineffective given, like, the paradox of choice that now exists yeah. with watching stuff, right? And if I really, really liked a certain actor or actress in something previously, I might look at what they had, you know, in the next show that they might come out with if they're, you know, on the front of the box or front yeah. of the, the image there. But even then, it's just everyone's so interchangeable like in that market and there's a lot of SaaS products that are so interchangeable, right? And so somehow there's that trust element that comes in with G2 crowd that it's not even about the reviews. It's not even about, it's just the fact that, oh, Neil reviewed that? Cool, I know Neil. That's right. great. Right. It's, it's, it's almost like we're returning to how it originally was, right? <laughs> right. It's it's like, <laughs> time is a flat circle. Like, we spent so much time building recommendation engines and fancy algorithms to help make that process better. And now it's like, all right, I have just seven... Ask, just ask someone. <laughs> just yeah. Uh, turn around, yeah, I have seven uh, streaming services. I just turn around and ask my colleague what I should watch next. All right, let's recap. What did we learn today? Goddard's a BAMF. That's what we learned. Clearly, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, I was shocked by the average employee tenure at that company. Um, you know, just, and, and maybe it's the community he's created in Chicago and just now even and beyond the, global, the Midwest. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, it, that that family dynamic that he's been able to create at the highest level um, was really impressive to me. While being super successful. It's not yeah. like he's running a family business no. where no one ever gets fired. Yeah. I think the other thing that, it, it, and we've, we've kind of belabored the point here, but your know, trust and loyalty, it comes through being human. And I think it comes through, you know, garnering interactions so if you introed me to someone or i saw that you did something or you know i saw your face on a testimonial all of a sudden i trust that more because i i know you like i know you pretty well but like I, even if i didn't know you i'd seen you on twitter or saw you in a video or something like that and i think that's something that you know we can kind of take back to not only our content but also can take back in in, in a lot of different ways within our company and, and obviously everyone listening or watching can can do as well yeah no absolutely well, that's all for this week on Protect the Hustle. If you enjoyed this episode, got value from it, make sure you are subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts or at protectthehustle.com to get the email to you on a weekly basis. We will see you next week. This has been a Recurse Studios production, the fastest growing subscription network out there. If you find use for this show, subscribe for more like it at profitwell.com slash recur.